We're in the book of Jude. <clears throat> Chapter 1, in case you didn't know that. <laughs> 14, verse 14 is where we're going to start today. Good morning. So we're in Jude chapter 1, verse 14. Let's just go ahead and read that. It was about these, it was also about these, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and, con and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So there's two main things we're going to talk about. Well, a lot we're going to talk about, hopefully quickly. But two things as you read through that, you see that he's been talking about, Jude's been talking about this coming judgment against the apostates. In verse 4, if you look back at verse 4, he revealed that the election of God is according to his divine wisdom. His judgment is just because his wisdom is perfect. And then in verse 5, Jude proclaims his desire to remind the readers of the surety and nature of God's judgment. Then go down to verse 10, and Jude reveals that the apostates who are being judged deserve it because their foolish hearts were darkened, yet they have full awareness of God and are living in rebellion to God. We clearly see that there are only two groups of people in this world. Those who will rule and reign with Christ, and the ungodly who will suffer his eternal wrath. There are the ungodly who Jude has been exposing and who Enoch prophesied about, and there are the righteous who will appear with Christ in the final judgment. You know, as you're reading through this, you see that word. If you go to verse 15, and we'll get there eventually, but if you just take a marker, a highlighter, and, uh, and highlight ungodly, all of a sudden you start to realize very quickly who Jude is talking about. He's talking about the ungodly. It's the ungodly, ungodliness, their ungodly ways, the ungodly sinners. He repeatedly refers to the ungodly as we're going through this. But in verse 14, it says, It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied. He starts off saying, it's about these. Jude refers to a prophecy of Enoch about the apostates, these ungodly sinners. He's revealing the motivation and certainty of judgment upon these ungodly apostates by a holy and a righteous God. Not one false teacher will escape the judgment of God. This is important. Not, not one. There's nobody going to escape the judgment of God. Jude's also revealing that the, the, the destruction of these apostates was, was prophesied about even before God judged the world with the global flood, as he quotes from the prophecy of Enoch. So remember, these are who are these? Jude describes them in verse 8 as relying on their dreams. And remember, I forget who taught that lesson, um, but I do remember them saying they're not living in reality. They're defiling the flesh. They're rejecting authority. They're blaspheming God. And again, like I said in Jude 10, 
He points out what Paul taught as well in Romans 1, 18 to 23. Their foolish hearts were darkened by their sin, and yet they are without excuse because of what? What are the two great witnesses that make all people without excuse? They leave everybody without excuse. They can't say, I didn't know. Do you guys, anybody want to yell it out? Two starts with C's. The two great witnesses that proclaim the truth of God that leave all without excuse. It's the reason that if we somebody says, "Well, if somebody doesn't call the name upon the name of Jesus, they will be saved." So if they never hear about the name of Jesus, then they're not guilty and they'll go to heaven. And that's a false, right? If somebody's never heard of Christ and they don't claim Christ, they still go to hell. Why? What are the two great witnesses? Does anybody know? Thank you. Conscience and creation. That's right. Conscience. What does conscience mean? Scientists out there, linguists, con with science. What's science? Knowledge. knowledge. With knowledge. You have knowledge. Conscience. You know. And creation testifies to the greatness of God. So everybody are left without excuse. They have the law of God written on their hearts. Spoke to a guy just the other day, and he was arguing, not really arguing, agreeing with me on why we should uphold certain laws and, and protect certain people and have certain moral standards in our world, but he had no foundation for it. And, he, and I, I kept asking him, why do you know that XYZ is the right thing to do? Why should we uphold this moral standard? You have no moral authority for it. By your standard, he was, he was agnostic is the way he put it. By his standard, we don't know if there's a God. We don't really know anything. Then you have no moral authority. So it's okay. Everybody's free to do whatever they want to do, right? How do you know what morally is the right thing to do apart from God? Well, you, it's written on your heart. You may not know the exact specifics of what the right what truth is and what the right thing to do but all human beings are without excuse they inherently know that they are sinful all of them we don't have to convict the world of sin the world knows it we just reveal the truth and reveal to them the answer to that and so he, he, we know that these apostates they know what they're doing wrong and that the judgment that they will ultimately experience is just and it's right. It's good. See, all, we all too often, we try to minimize or we try to avoid discussing the coming judgment. It's, if you think about how people evangelize or how churches promote on their signs often, it's all about the love of God. The love of God. God loves you. You're so lovable. You're so great. You're so wonderful. Come to Jesus because he's cuddly, right? But we, we, we don't want to promote the judgment of God. We're kind of afraid of it, right? We, we seem to be hesitant to say that the future judgment of God is a good thing even. Even when we do discuss it, it's like, I mean, you know, it's, I mean he's got to do it, but is it, is it good that God would condemn sinners to hell? We kind of hesitate. We don't want to say that. And it's understandable in part because we understand that apart from Christ, we ourselves deserve that eternal wrath of God, right? And it kind of makes us a little squeamish to think about the fact that sinful people are going to be destroyed, rightfully so. 
But it seems that we are often afraid to take the stance that there are those walking among us that who will one day stand before a holy judge and be found guilty, where he will then, in all of his goodness and righteousness, pour out his wrath upon them. That's a good thing. For sin to be judged righteously is a good end. You understand, if one of your family members had a crime, an atrocious crime committed against them, would you not want judgment? Would you not want justice? So when somebody sins, the sin is a trespass of the law. It's a crime against God. When somebody commits a sin, they've committed a crime against the highest authority in all of the universe. Do we not want justice? Yeah. Justice is a good thing. So for an unrepentant, an unatoned-for sinner to stand before God and be judged guilty and condemned to hell, that's a good thing. And we don't need to make apologies for that. For sin to be judged righteously is a good end. At the same time, though, we understand we don't take pleasure in the destruction of the unrighteous, do we? We don't take... We, we, we appreciate the judgment of sin, but we don't take pleasure in the destruction of these people. We know that each one of them is an image bearer of God. They've been created in the image of God. We are joyful at the destruction of sin, even when it requires the destruction of an image bearer of God. Even God himself declares that he takes no pleasure in their death. We just finished uh, 2 Peter, right? In 2 Peter 3, 7, 9, he says, I take no pleasure in the destruction of telephones. <sighs> no. <laughs> we'll look over at 2 Peter, and I'll read that for you. 2 Peter 3, 7 to 9. We'll just go in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God, the one that's going to judge and destroy every wicked deed, desires that you would repent and not perish. He doesn't take pleasure in the destruction of his image bearers, but he does take pleasure in the destruction of sin. So the ungodly will face a day of wrath. The Lord is patient, desiring that they repent and turn to Him. But if that never occurs, His wrath will fall upon them and sin will be destroyed. This is a good thing. We need to get that in our heads. Sin will be destroyed. That is a good thing. So we'll get back here shortly to who these are, those who will be experience this future judgment in just a moment. But let's, let's move forward here to the uh, next part of verse 14. So if you go back to Jude, and he talks about, uh, it was about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied. If you flip over to the book of First Enoch, we'll read about this prophecy. It's a test. Somebody in this room put me up to that. <laughs> not going to out them. <laughs> See who turns there. I was like, I don't think anybody will actually do that. I probably would have not paying attention if I was in the group. I was like, wait a second. So 
He just said, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, and then quotes a prophecy. Where does that come from? Anybody know? Used to have a guy out on the streets with us, evangelizing on the streets, that was enthralled with the book of Enoch. He didn't know the rest of the Bible very well, but he was hooked on First Enoch. He said, boy, you got to read that. It's a, good, it's a good prophecy. It's good stuff. I'm like, how about you study the rest of the Bible? Then we'll go worry about these extra biblical books. So what he does is Jude is quoting actually a couple times here from extra biblical books in his writings. It's believed that he, he used the book of First Enoch here and Earlier on, he got quoted from the Assumption of Moses for his material. The prophecy in verse 14 doesn't appear anywhere in the canon of Scripture. You're not going to find anywhere in the Bible where Enoch prophesied this prophecy. He's, he's pulling from the Jewish Apocrypha, this book of 1 Enoch. And over here in, in, in uh, verse 9, Jump back up a little bit. And it says, But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, right? You're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible either. You're not going to go in the, into the Old Testament and find uh, Michael the archangel disputing over the, book, over the body of Moses. It's not in there. But he pulled that out of, presumably, uh, the assumption of Moses. It's a book that was written, passed on as Moses, who wrote it? We don't know, because Moses was dying. Where did it come from? That's why it's outside of Scripture. But it, it references in that book, Michael, the archangel, contending for the body of Moses. And that's where that would have come from. So it's another account where Jude record, records that cannot be found anywhere in the canon of Scripture. So these two instances actually used were at some point were used to dispute the book of Jude being included in the canon of Scripture. They said, well, he, Jude's got these extra biblical accounts that don't line up with the rest of Scripture or not line up but aren't found there, so it shouldn't be in the canon. Well, eventually and obviously, it was determined to be inspired by God and treated as Scripture. It fulfilled all the requirements of canon, was determined to be Scripture. The book of Jude is Scripture. So we have Jude twice, twice referencing material that is not included in the canon of Scripture. Is this okay? It's a question we need to ask ourselves when going through these books. Especially why you should familiarize yourself with stuff like this, because there's going to be people when you're, remember what he said, contending for the faith? There's going to be people that are going to throw stuff like this at you, and you're going to be able, need to be able to defend it. And, and not just look like, you know, I have no idea, you know, right? Jesus is great. Well, why? What's true? Why is this true? And to be able to contend for the faith. It's because we know, for one, that all of, all of Scripture is inspired by God, and having been accepted as Scripture, we can trust that all of the book of Jude is truth, right? Even if it came from some outside source, we know that God inspired Jude to pull from that source truth to include in his word. It's inspired by God. How it's inspired, God knows. But it is inspired by God. It's included in this. It's included in the authority of Scripture, the canon of Scripture, so we know that it is Scripture. We know it is God. 
We may, we may not be able to say that about the books he quotes from, but we can say for certain that the truth he pulls from those books is true. We can trust that Michael the archangel did in fact contend with the devil over the body of Moses, even though it's not included in what, in what we would call scripture. It's included here, so we know it's true. And we can also know that Enoch was a prophet who prophesied concerning the judgment of the Lord. See, Jude isn't the only one that's done this. It's not uncommon for biblical authors to do this. In fact, Paul did it. In Acts 17, 28, what, he, what did he say to the Athenians? He said, even your poets, and then he uses the words of their poets in Scripture, right? He even made it clear that he was quoting their poets, if you read that. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, he quotes their, their philosophers by saying, bad company corrupts. In Titus 1.12, he quotes this guy that I can't say his name, Epimenides, I think is how you say it, where he said, all Cretans are liars. He states that as a truth. We know that's truth in Scripture, but that come from another philosopher that was one of their philosophers. He pulled from extra-biblical writers to include truth in the Scripture. Paul and Jude both used extra-biblical authors to promote biblical truth. All Scripture is inspired by God, even Scripture that uses truth found in extra-biblical sources. This doesn't make those extra-biblical sources equal to Scripture or even truth as a whole. It just means that there was truth found in them, which, which was used by God to inspire His holy men as they, they recorded His holy word. A very important point here. That doesn't mean we need to go looking for truth in a bunch of other documents. People say, well, if you find truth in Buddhism, then it's true. No, we're not writing the Bible, are we? So we don't need to go doing that. We need to find truth in Scripture. That's where we find truth. All I'm saying is to defend the Scriptures, we need to understand where these came from and why it's okay. It doesn't give us the right to go now searching for truth wherever we find truth, right? We search for truth through Scripture. And then if other truth aligns with it, great. We didn't need to go find it there, did we? Because we already had it here. There's no need to go searching for truth outside of the Scriptures. So who is this Enoch, the seventh from Adam? Remember, Jude is writing to compel the readers to contend for the faith. He has exposed the apostates which have, which have crept into the church and is delivering a warning regarding the sure judgment of God which will come upon them. Enoch, the one he's referring to here, is the, is the seventh in the lineage of Adam. It says here, Enoch, the seventh from Adam. There's also another lineage which includes an Enoch that is from Adam through Cain. And the seventh in that one is, is Lamech. See, in Genesis 5, we see Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, and Methuselah. That's, where, that's the one he's referring to. But then Genesis 4, we see Adam, Cain, Enoch, Irad, Mahujel, Methusahel, Lamech, and Jabal. So in that second genealogy, you have an Enoch, but that's not the one he's referring to. He's referring to the Enoch in the lineage of Adam. And if you look at the difference between these two lineages, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of a, a, a thought about what he's talking about. He's talking about the judgment of God. 
So when Enoch prophesies, he prophesies about the judgment of God upon the ungodly, right? Lamech was the seventh in the lineage of Cain, right? Do you remember what he, what his big proclamation about judgment was? If you want to see it, we'll go over to Genesis chapter 4 real quick. Let's just go look at it. Wasn't really going to go there, but I think it'd be good to read it. Remember, Enoch prophesies about the judgment, the righteous judgment of God upon the ungodly. Lamech, here's his judgment in verse 23 of chapter 4. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. They both recognize the necessity of justice, right? But only one desires the justice the Lord brings. Lamech, or not prophesies, but boasts of what? His own vengeance. It's the vengeance of Lamech on somebody instead of the vengeance of God upon the wicked. The wicked apostates serve their own desires. They seek their own justice, and yet they will ultimately receive the judgment of God. And then he goes on, he says, behold, when he's announcing this prophecy of Enoch. It begins with the word behold. Jude uses the words of Enoch to draw attention to this prophetic word regarding the, the, the uh, apostates. He says, behold, look here, pay attention. He's about to say something very important. Behold what? Behold, the Lord comes. The judgment of the apostates will be fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself, who is King of kings, Lord of lords, and will one day return to claim his kingdom once and for all. In Revelation 19, you see that. Christ is king. If you remember nothing else from this lesson today, this is what I want you to remember. Y'all looking? Christ is king. Don't forget that. He's the righteous judge of all the nations because he has been declared king of both heaven and earth. Christ, we don't say Christ will be king. Christ is now presently king and he will judge the unrighteous in his kingdom. We don't live in a kingdom that is outside of the rule and reign of Christ. We're not waiting for him to come back and then establish justice. He has established justice. It will be fulfilled. He will come back and he will judge the unrighteous because he is king of heaven and earth. He's the ruler of all things. Don't ever forget that. That should bring us joy, peace, comfort in the midst of total chaos. And it says when he does return, he comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. When the king of kings and lord of lords returns to claim his eternal kingdom, he will come with his holy ones. They are the elect saints and the faithful angels, all together with the Lord in his triumphant return. Those of us who are truly the children of God will be with him. Colossians 3, 1-4. Let's flip over there real quick. Very quick. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. People use that verse all the time. We talk about set your mind on things above. Look on things above. Look, look above where Christ is. But not only just because that's where Christ is, but the thought that he will, that you and me and those that are redeemed by the blood of Christ, we will one day appear with him in his glory. This should cause us to look to those things which are with him now, to set our mind on things above. When he returns, we will be with him in glory. We will come with him in glory. That should cause us to want to think about him, to look to those things that are with him now. This revelation that Christ will one day appear as the conquering king with us by his side draws our hope and desire heavenward while we live victoriously on this earth. Christians don't live defeated on this earth. Christians serve a victorious king. We must constantly remind ourselves and one another of those things. And it says his holy ones. We don't want to let this description slip by us. We have been declared holy by God. If you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if you have been declared holy and righteous, what a tremendous blessing it is to know that you are no longer seen as a wretched sinner, that you, th- th- this wretched sinner that you once were, but as a holy child of God. What does the scripture, Bill, constantly repeats about you were something and now you're something, Right? You're a new creation. What you once were, you no longer are. You're a new creation in Christ, right? Old things have passed away. All things have been made new. You are holy and righteous and as declared by God. Many like to say this, and I'm probably going to get in trouble because some people love this, and I, I don't. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm going to encourage you, stop saying that. That is not true. The truth is, I was a sinner, now I'm a saint. That's the truth. You're declared a saint. Am I teaching you now that sinless perfectionism, that now that you're a saint, you'll never commit a sin again? I'm not telling you that. But what I'm telling you is, your mindset... Knowing who you are has tremendous impact on how you live. Stop saying, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, just holding on, hoping for glory. No, you were a sinner. Old things have passed away. All things have been made new. You were a sinner. Now you are declared a saint. I argued and argued and argued with a pastor over that at one point in my life. Like, you don't know me. He's like, but the Bible says you're a saint. I'm like, I don't care what it says. You don't know me. And he finally convinced me of that through Scripture. I'm not a sinner holding on, hoping to do my best and be accepted by God. I'm a saint declared holy and righteous by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are too. And when he returns, you will be with him. His holy ones will be with him. That doesn't mean... You're going to be perfect. You may fall and you repent, confess. He's faithful and just to forgive you and you're still declared holy and righteous. That is encouraging. To me it is. So 
send the elders letters if you don't like it, not me. And they will, they will beat me up over it, but I don't like that saying. Remember we discussed this very thing back in 1 Peter 2.9. What did he say in 1 Peter 2.9? Flip over there real quick. It's not far. You are a, a sinner who gets to tell people about God. No, it says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is who you are. Remember when we taught that lesson, we discussed who you are impacts what you do. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. You are his holy ones and you will come with him. And what will you come to do? The purpose of his return is not to give the apostates one more chance to repent. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. He's not showing up saying, hey everybody, I'm going to count to three and you better repent before I really bring my judgment, right? He's not showing up saying, this is one last straw, just, just you do what I say or you're going to feel my wrath. No, he's showing up declaring, time's up. It's too late. The time of repentance has passed. And now his full righteousness and just judgment will be unleashed on the wicked of the world. MacArthur lists some primary attributes about this final judgment, and I'm just going to briefly hit a few of them. One thing, it's going to be a specific future event. In Acts 17, it talks about the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. Acts 17, chapter 30, verse 30. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. It's a specific future event. It's going to be general and public. In Matthew 25, 31 to 33, he describes the event where he will publicly call all nations before him and he'll separate them out publicly and generally into two major groups. It will be clear who belongs to which group. There will not be any question as to which side you're on. It'll be very clear. And it will be just and impartial. Romans 2.11 and Galatians 2.6 talks about God shows no partiality in his judgment. His judgment will be fair and based upon his righteous divine wisdom. God's judgment will not involve emotion. Nobody will be able to say that they were unjustly judged. He is a completely impartial judge. We can learn something about the impartiality of God's judgment or from it. We are to handle justice in the same way that God does. Look at Deuteronomy 27, 19. We are to judge and support judgments that are impartial and just. Deuteronomy 27, 19, what's it say? Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Let's try again. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. 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 So be it, right? Cursed be anyone who perverts the judgment of these people. So you know I can't let this go without addressing something that I'm very dear to my heart. 
It's one verse among many which shows why believers should not support, in relation to abortion, pro-life incremental laws. To support a law which would show partiality, which would say, hey, let's save a baby that has a heartbeat, but don't worry about the rest of them. We'll worry about them later. You're perverting justice or showing partiality to a group of people, specifically here, sojourners, fatherless, and a widow, and you're bringing a curse upon yourself. The sojourner surely describes a baby in its mother's womb, right? It's defined as a temporary inhabitant, a newcomer, lacking inherited rights. What about fatherless? I really can't think of anything more fitting than to describe an innocent baby who's about to be killed, alone in a room with nobody to protect them. They're there with their mother, the nurses and the doctors, and they're all gathered there ready to take the baby's life. They have no father there to stand up for them or to protect them from the wicked ones that are coming to murder them. Consider that the next time you're asked to support legislation, which includes exceptions for rape and incest, or determines based upon the age or the development of the baby, and you think that's far-fetched, uh, it's already happening, and our governor has already met with leading legislators in the state of Ohio to change a law that we've already put on the books and make it worse. We've already passed the heartbeat bill in Ohio, which I hate. It's a terrible bill. It's a curse upon our nation because it perverts justice. And our governor has already met with the leaders saying, after Tuesday, depending on how it goes, we need to add rape and incest into that bill so that the liberals will accept us and it'll be a little bit softer. Remember that when you vote for a governor next time. Think about this when somebody says that we can save some if we just pass these certain bills. Remember this. Stick it in your brain. Don't forget it. Cursed is the one who perverts justice Do these little ones. God's justice is just and partial because he is just and impartial. And so our justice should be the same thing. You support an impartial legislation or partial legislation that perverts justice you're bringing a curse upon yourself and your nation. The promise of future judgment is intended as a warning. The fear of God is a means to hold mankind back from sin. In Exodus 20:20, Moses declares that the fear of his righteous judgment is a restraint for sin in our lives. And in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 to 27, there's a fearful expectation of judgment for those who go on sinning. This is because they know the truth of Hebrews 9.27. Anybody know that one? Bill has repeated that one multiple times recently. Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Thinking about that should curb our sinful desires, right? There's a judgment coming on the day you die. And the judgment of God is based upon His law. His justice is not subjective based upon the direction of the wind or the whims of culture. Mankind is both unable and unwilling to keep His commandments. Romans 3, 9-11 and Romans 7, 5 declare that sinful man is unable to keep the law of God. 
And Isaiah 30.10 and Romans 1.18 declare that sinful man is unwilling to keep the law of God. So we're both unable and unwilling to keep the law of God. Humans are the only created things that look him in the face and say, no. R.C. Sproul wrote a great book on the holiness of God, and he talks about this there. He says, all of creation has obeyed the Lord from the moment of its creation. Think about it. The sun burns. It just has been burning ever since God put it into place. The moon just goes around the earth. It doesn't ever look at God and be like, I'm not going to do that today and wander off into space, right? The earth, it just spins in his orbit. The seas, the tides, they move in and out. The animals, they do what they were created to do, right? Lions, they kill things. Zebras, they get eaten, right? Animals just do what they were created to do. Even the flowers, they drop their seeds in season. They grow up the next season. They do what they were created to do. Only mankind were the only ones, created beings of God that look at him and say, I will not obey you. I will not do what you said. God's judgment is based upon mankind being unable and unwilling to obey his law. And finally, his judgment results in the eternal punishment in hell. Matthew 13, 40 to 42 describes that. His judgment is so terrible because it ultimately sends the unrepentant to a place of eternal torment. It's the final destination of those it's the final destination of those that Jude is referring to here. The apostates will one day be on the receiving end of God's judgment. And so then he goes on, he says, I'm going to execute judgment on the ungodly. We'll get back, we'll get back to these. We are getting back to these. I wrote my notes wrong. So these ones that Jude has been speaking about, and then he uses these, this term, the ungodly, here. He uses it four times in this one verse to describe the apostates. They aren't just mistaken about the commands of Christ, right? We just discussed that they are unwilling, unable, they know the truth, and they don't want to do it. They aren't mostly okay and just need to clear up a little bit of their teaching. You know, they're not like, they kind of got it. They're just off a little bit. No, they and their behavior is ungodly, the way he describes it. It's destitute of reverential awe towards God, contemning God or treating God in a contemptible way. They despise God. He says there, look in verse 15, and I'll just hit some of the highlights. He, he executes judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Pretty obvious he's talking about ungodly people here. And then he goes on to describe their behavior in vivid terms. And, but his summary here through all of this, if you look all through Jude, here's the summary of these ungodly people. Verse 4, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, he says that they rely on their dreams being out of touch with reality. They defile the flesh. They reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. And then in verse 11, he says that they walk in the way of Cain. And they abandon themselves for the sake of gain like Balaam did. In verse 12, it says that they join in the fellowship, 
without fear of God. And verse 12 says he put themselves above others. That, that arrogance, it's like, I'm good, I'm better than you guys. Good thing you aren't like, like me, or good thing I'm not like you, right? There's, there's a story about a, uh, a man that stood in the back saying, oh, thank you, God, I'm not like that guy, right? It's kind of what they do. They're, I'm better than others. I'm more important than others. Verse 16, they're grumblers, malcontents. They follow their own sinful desires. They're loud mouth boasters. And they show favoritism to gain advantage. That's the ungodly. I would encourage you, sit down and read through that list. Perhaps there are times when that list can apply to you in some areas. I know I read through it and I'm like, ooh, need to work on that or think about that. There, there's a few there that kind of hit you, right? There's a reason these things are in the Bible. These are things God hates. He's going to judge these things. It's the description of the ungodly and their behavior. They have no fear of God and have made a God of their own creation. They will one day stand before that God and they'll experience his eternal wrath. And notice here what he says. Multiple times he says ungodly, but what else does he say? All, all. The judgment is on all. He convicts all, all their deeds and all the harsh things. God's judgment will be all-inclusive. It will include all who remain in their sin, and it will include all of their sin. They're heaping up judgment for themselves, right? In Hebrews 4.13, let's read that verse. It's a good one. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, to whom we must give, a, give an account. Whenever I'm talking to people and I try to tell them, what is the judgment of God going to be like? One great way I've stole it from somebody is to say, imagine if somebody could take like a USB thing and plug it into your brain and download all of the words and thoughts and deeds that you've had even over just the last month. Just the thoughts that's went through there. And then they come into Sunday school on Sunday morning and they just plug it in and play it for us all to watch. I would not want that to take place. I'm sure none of us would, right? But that is how God sees us. And that's how, let me rephrase that. That was a false statement. That is how God sees those that are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's how when they stand before him in judgment, all are exposed in word, thought, and deed. That should be a terrifying thing. There was a sermon preached about that, right? There will be no pleading down to lesser charges. Remember, they were not only unable, but they were unwilling to submit to his authority. So we're going to end this study the way Solomon ended the book of Ecclesiastes. So go over to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Keep your finger right there. And if you want to, you can open up Jude as well, and we're going to read both of these. It was about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. 
and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Chapter 12, verse 13 to 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every single secret thing, whether good or evil. And that is a good thing. Father, we thank you for your judgment. We thank you that you're the surety of your judgment, the complexity, the uh, all-encompassing nature of your judgment brings us to repentance, humbles us, and causes us to fear you. The other thing it does, Lord, is it causes us to glory and glorify you, to proclaim you are good. No wicked, evil thing will escape your justice. God, there's many times where we've been sinned against and people seem to get away with it. They will all come under your wrath someday. We thank you for that. I do pray that you'll help us to use this to focus our minds on things above and to warn others of the things to come. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.